You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today performs right here at The Magnet Theater on Tuesdays with Wonderland and Premiere on Fridays and, and Object Work on several upcoming dates and has also recently just begun uh, teaching Level 1 musical improv mm-hmm. classes. The great Annie Moore. Thank you for being here, Annie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How has that been going? You've started teaching classes recently. It's good. It's good. It takes, um, you have a lot of time to kind of comprehend that you're doing it. So like I shadowed for eight weeks and then Michael Lutton and I co-taught for eight weeks. Then Michael Lutton shadowed me for eight weeks. Yeah. And I just finished my first class alone, uh, which I think is really fun. And I think the test will be when they get to level two, (laughs) if I've taught them everything. Yes. What are you like... What's your own personal, okay, if they walk away from this class, being able to do this thing, I've done my job. What, what, what's your like, mark of success? Well, I think the, yeah, the mark of success, success in musical level one is just that they know how to sing every type of song, mm-hmm. right? So if they can sing every type of song and they come away with like, this feeling that the magnet is as beautiful a community as I think it is, mm-hmm. then I think that I've done a good job. Yeah. So I think by being enthusiastic and really trying to you know, get everybody to know that they've done their best job, you know, and they feel really excited about this community, then I feel good about it. That's pretty close to my litmus test too. Yeah. It's like, if you can take three like tangible practical skills mm-hmm. and then just basically communicate a feeling of like love for, for the yeah. doing of it and, yeah. and have people feel like warm about it. then it's like, you now go off and be yeah. your own, be your own guide with it. Especially musical improv is so, um, there's so many things to think about at one time and yeah. not, not to say that regular improv is not the same or sketch or whatever. Uh, but you have to be singing and be doing improv and dancing and remembering this form and trying to connect to your partner and harmonies or whatever it is. And so there's just a lot going on at one time that I know that it can get really overwhelming for mm-hmm. people. So just trying to lessen that fear of like, it's okay. Great, you got three out of the five. Five things to think about at one time is really tough. Yeah. You did three. Good job, you know. Yeah. So. You kind of like forget it. You forget like how much of like a gigantic mountain it is that you're facing when you first start improvising. And like as a teacher, you just like really want to like foster this feeling for people of like, it's not that bad. It's, (laughs) It's just like small steps. You'll be fine. You can make it. Yeah. But like. You say that having internalized so many of these things, so it feels real easy. It feels mm-hmm. like driving a car. It's like, all right, no problem. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it, it uh, um, for a newer student learning a new thing, it is not at all. It, it's horrifyingly yeah. difficult and and gigantic. It's tough. And then, yeah, especially in musical, you get you get some people that have only taken like one regular improv level somewhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was recently or maybe it was a few years ago and Mm -hmm. so that's also kind of part of the equation uh and I think that when I started musical improv level one here at the magnet like I had already had like five years of improv under my belt so I didn't have to think about that Mm -hmm. part of it so I have a lot of empathy for people that are coming in like literally I started a class this past Wednesday and somebody said we were going around the circle asking why why you're taking musical improv and uh somebody said oh well because it's combining two of the things i'm the most afraid of yeah. i was like yeah that sounds about right <laughs> G- 
wow, good job. Yeah. Like you're already ahead of the curve if you're like embracing this like fear totally. of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You, you kind of like, I love when I hear people say that in the class, it like immediately makes me feel like protective of that person because, yeah. because like, I don't know, you, you like, you smell courage on people. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and it makes you want to like stand up and do like a little bit better yourself just to kind of like honor the fact that they're bringing so much courage into the room and doing something that's making them, you know, pee their pants. And it's like a lovely thing when you meet people who, who come at it from that thing of, oh, I'm here because it's the last place I would want to be. Yeah. Good for you. (laughs) This is my worst nightmare. So I'm very happy to be here. So what are the different kinds of songs that you want people to know when they leave your class? Um, opening numbers, okay. how to start a show, um, something called a verse-chorus song, chorus-verse, tagline songs, trios. I think that's it. The five main big kinds of numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's that really lays the basis so that when you go into level two, it becomes narrative work. Uh, but you have to have that song structure in your bones. Otherwise, because you have to like free up that brain space for all the narrative play. So, How do you... like? Let's say you have someone who's coming to the class mm-hmm. uh, um, with all the courage in the world. Yeah. Um, they're game for for anything. They're willing to throw themselves in 100%. Sure. Willing to take notes and hear your feedback. But they have zero musical awareness mm-hmm. whatsoever. Like, do not understand verse-chorus structure. Uh, um, like, what do you focus on to to bring that person to their voice? Um, well, there's some practical things that you do as a teacher of literally holding up your fingers and counting eight beats. Like, you're on the first line. This is still the first line. Now you're on the second line. This is now the second That's line. It's actually incredibly useful. It's very useful. <laughs> it's um, really useful. Students get a little freaked out when I tell them on the last class, hey, today's class, I'm not going to do any, I call them pointy fingers. I don't know why. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm pointing fingers. Uh, no pointy fingers on the last class. And they're like, you're not going to do it for the show either? I'm like, nope, you're all on your own. Uh, but So that's a practical thing that ends up eventually helping. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Spitznagel. Oh, my God. What, an, what a gem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, just, he's really great at like being able to play the piano and... If somebody's offbeat, like he'll like hammer the keys so that you really hear that downbeat. Um, and then otherwise, you just kind of stop and you kind of laugh and you're like, "Okay, we got off, huh? Okay, cool. We know exactly what we're singing about. Let's just take a breath between lines. You got this. You, pff, it's in the back. No big deal. Blah, blah, blah. And then just kind of like let them get at ease because I think the more they get off, they know they're off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the more freaked out they get about it, and so you just have to kind of. Be like, oh, it's no big deal. It's really no big deal. We're just, we're just singing an improvised song in front of twenty strangers that you don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I think those are the most helpful things. I think otherwise it's just repetition, mm-hmm. like anything. You know, sometimes people come up and they'll mess up a song. They'll mess up a song, and uh, I'll be like, you've literally improvised three songs in your whole life. Mm-hmm. Like, that's okay. <laughs> if you're gonna mess up, this is the time to mess up. Right? Totally. So, I, I that's something I, I like consistently forget to remember telling my classes that like you need a place where you can just fail all the time oh, yeah. and this is it mm-hmm. you gotta just like show up like very happy to like you're learning to walk all over again mm-hmm. and you're gonna like fall on your butt a bunch of times 
And, yeah. and like, it's gotta be like a place where like, you just know going in that like failure is welcome and, mm-hmm. and accepted and no problem whatsoever. Yeah. I'll usually end up telling an anecdote about how recently, cause usually there's also always a recent anecdote of like, well, yeah, recently I was in a show and in the middle I was like, I do not know what I'm singing about. I'm going to keep singing. Yeah. There's that voice in the back of your head of like, you got nothing and you're still on the front, like singing a, a song. So I think sometimes that's helpful for level one students to know that like, I mean, I've been doing musical improv for four, four years, four, almost four and a half years. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, like I should be perfect every time. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, you're always going to have moments. You're an improviser. Right? What's like, that like for you? Cause like as like teachers and as experienced people, you know, we're supposed to be like, there are no mistakes and you make things work, but like I'll be in shows sometimes where there will literally be chills going up and down my sides because I'm aware of like how uh, um, crappy I'm doing and how like I have nothing and I'm just like yeah. Oh, yeah. grasping. Do you, like, oh, it's are, the worst. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible feeling. So like what is that feeling like for you? Um, oh, For me, it's like it's just like a big old muddle through and then getting off stage and being like, what happened? Like, or being like, how am I going to make that work in the narrative? What actually just came out? And then trying to like, you're not like fixing anything, but because it's a narrative show, you can kind of justify it on the back end a Mm -hmm. little bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, it it feels very uncomfortable. (laughs) And I tell myself that like, this is why I do improv. Like, I like that I'm doing something that I will never be 100% at. Yeah. Right? Like, that's, for me, part of the appeal. Yeah. Um, And I think once you start feeling comfortable is when you start having, like, your worst shows. Uh, At least in my experience. You have, like, you have your comfortable shows. Sure. And they're just kind of like, it's like... um, it's like cutting with a with a knife that you haven't been like sharpening too well. It still cuts. But it works. It works. Yeah, it's works. fine. Mm-hmm. But you got to like a p- push a little harder, mm-hmm. and and maybe it's like a little bit wobblier. But those right. are just like those kind of like they feel like a little too like worn shows. Yeah. Every now and again, you still get those like <gasps> the bottom drops out of you shows, and it's like I really don't know what mm-hmm. I'm doing right now, yeah. and it's like chilling. But, like, I feel like I've had one or two of those pretty recently where, like, I'm speaking and I'm like, oh. this is not coming out of anywhere. Yeah. And there's actually something, like, a little bit recognizing that, like, there's nothing to do right now. But, like... <laughs> Just keep doing it. I, I gotta, <laughs> it's like you're seeing it all happen in slow motion. It's all falling and it's about to, like, be destroyed on the floor. And it's like, mm-hmm. I have nothing to do right now but, like, let that happen. Mm-hmm. And it feels like terrible it doesn't feel terrible the way that those like dull shows feel it feels terrible in like a, in a whole different way oh yeah but there's something actually kind of exciting about being in a place where it's like oh man i'm feeling all of those feelings mm-hmm. I, i'm not like shying away from those feelings like that's like a part of my experience too and that's even like part of the life of an improviser is like yeah. every now and again and you screw it up big time and i think it's that type of show that like then keeps you on your toes for your next show sure because you're kind of like i don't want that to happen again and then all of a sudden you're like playing at least for me i start doing the things that like i don't generally do all the time of like playing game or like doing a walk on these are things i don't usually do uh i leave those to other team members uh and i'm like oh look at me i'm improvising wow i just made a move like i did a bit or like these things that aren't usually in my like general repertoire it's interesting because it does kind of like it brings you back to like level one 
mind. Mm. When you do like, okay, I dropped the ball and then it, it's like a little bit of like a humbling experience, but like you do kind of there, maybe that's part of what's nice about that feeling is like I survive it and I'm like very in touch with how much of a beginner I really am about stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of like carry that forward into the next performance a little bit. Yeah. It like has that nice, scary, alive. I can, I can, I can burn myself doing this a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Like the stove is still hot. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so, um, okay. I want to talk about narrative and musical because okay. it seems to me like it's adding this whole other layer of heart on top of everything. Of hard? Hard. Or- yeah. Yeah. I thought you said heart, and heart. I agree well, with that too. Well, both that too. <laughs> that too, right? But like, you also now, you're not only improvising your scenes and having to remember your song structure and having to do yeah. your best to keep it make sense. And some sweet choreo. Yeah. 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 And, and, and on top of all of that, you're looking to pay off a story, which can be... Tough. <laughs> yeah, pretty overwhelming. So yeah, like, really. What, what do you have in mind when you're approaching narrative? How are you teaching it to people? What's like good? What should you be thinking? Um, I well, mean, for, maybe we should clarify for people of like yeah. what makes narrative improv different from non-narrative improv. What makes what makes a narrative musical show different than a in Herald like a, or, cool. or? So like, I feel like in a in a Herald or a non-narrative show, um, you're using themes, right? Or like you're kind of uh, taking other people's ideas and like blowing them up like A to C or whatever. <laughs> the language I'm using is like clearly from somebody who doesn't do a lot of regular <laughs> improv anymore uh, because I discovered musical and it's wonderful and magical. Um, but I feel like you have like, it's a little bit looser. Like you can have recurring characters, but definitely themes. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, um, but I, I feel like in a, in a musical narrative show, you're, the way that we teach it here at the Magnet in like level two and level three is you have a protagonist, you have an antagonist, you have charm characters, which are like those characters that fill out the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow they all kind of come to a head at the end. And that ending is always, um, it's, it's ambiguous because you just don't know what it's going to be like. Um, we try to teach it a little bit more structured, like there's a moment of doubt and then we end it. But still, the, the ending is always just, and then you end it. So it's a little tough. Um, hopefully, maybe those charm characters somehow are like the link between what the protagonist is trying to get and what and, and getting it um, or somehow a foil to the antagonist. And that's our like general fairy tale structure. So that's kind of what you start off with. And then from there, you can kind of blow up the narrative in however way you want to. Um, some people start going towards more of like a dramatic question as opposed to a specific type of want mm-hmm. or um, like objective. Um, I think it's, it's tough. It's tough. Because <laughs> you have this opening number, and that's kind of like your idea generator. You're trying to get your who, your what, your where out in that opening number so that everybody's kind of generally on the same page. And then once we meet our pro tag, then we maybe know where we want to go like based on what they want, what they need. Um, my, my difficulties when it comes to a narrative structure is like picking the right antagonist. Like if, you, if your pro tag really wants puppies, you don't don't necessarily want to pick an antag that wants to kill all the puppies mm-hmm. because that antag used to, it's like almost like a protagonist gone wrong mm-hmm. you know like they still think that they're right and that they're good they're almost like a trump right where they they think that they're being real and and a good person they're a good guy but they're real evil right so it, for me like that's a tough 
that's always a tough thing for me to like figure out exactly what that antagonist is. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like like song structure in level one, where it just ends up being in your bones, and you can the more you think about it, the more you actually mess up. So you just kind of stop thinking about it, and then you can do it. Um, the same with narrative structure, like that fairy tale structure. I feel like I'm at a place now where I, I hopefully am starting to forget it a little bit, so that I can play it more genuinely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. Yes. <laughs> okay. Great. Yes. Is it, it, what makes a good villain? This is like a cool oh. thing to. I, I watched a um, a video online, and now I'm going to completely crap out about who made this video. Great. <sighs> um. Uh, uh, maybe Evan can look for it. it so I'm going to give you like a little bit of like you're going to have to follow a trail for this one. It's a short <laughs> video about um, Batman the animated series. But this is not the video I'm talking about. Uh, this particular video is about the uh, Heart of Ice episode with Mr. Freeze in Batman the Animated Series. And then that links up. The same person who made that video makes a video about, I want to say, Toy Story. Oh, God. This is so <laughs> Are difficult. Are you just describing like a Wikipedia hole you were in? No, something? this was a real thing. You found it. No, no, you didn't find it. Well, it doesn't make a difference. Okay. He, he, <laughs> this video is like talking about like one of the problems in blockbuster movies Mm -hmm. is the way that the protagonist has like a nemesis and the entire movie is just about like the confrontation with the Mm -hmm. nemesis. But every movie has the exact same thing. Uh, It's like the confrontation is literally just like 40 minutes of them smacking into each Mm -hmm. other and they're not really villains. They're just kind of like these like... They're obstacles. They're, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. That's all mm-hmm. they are. They're obstacles that are just... You pound into them over and over again until you're victorious, until they can make the next sequel where you mm-hmm. pound into the next identical obstacle. Right. Versus like a really good villain. And then and then the person who made this video used um, Woody from Toy Story as the example that like mm. Woody's the villain of Toy Story. Huh. Uh, it's not the kid who like tortures the toys because right. like from that kid's point of view he doesn't know these are sentient yeah, toys. toys he's actually a creative kid in a in a bad environment he's making cool robots Woody's yeah. the one who sets everything in motion because he can't let go mm-hmm. and he can't roll with changes mm-hmm. and his pride gets in the way and that's what generates the story that's and 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 like that actually makes for a much more compelling mm-hmm. villain because he's not really a classical villain but he's the problem right so it got me thinking a lot of like, yeah, brilliant, of course. Yeah. What makes good villains? And generally, like, villains are the ones who drive the stories, right? They're right. the ones who set things in motion. They're the ones who create the problem that mm-hmm. now we have to, like, rebalance. So right. it's a cool thing to think about. Absolutely. Actually, it's funny. And uh, yeah, Wednesday night, we had a premiere rehearsal for the show on Friday. And um, Hannah Chase, who was uh, coaching us, uh, was kind of pointing out for each of us what our not necessarily like weaknesses are, but like what's, what is something that we kind of avoid <laughs> in, in shows? And mine is always antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because I, it's, it's hard to get such a grasp on an antagonist. Um, although in premiere you have 45 minutes to an hour for a show, so you can flesh out an antagonist much better than in a 24-minute show. Um, and it, it was interesting because I've never, I feel like since level two, I've never understood what a philosophy song is. And that's something that they teach in level two that the antagonist sings a philosophy song. And it's it's almost like a Poor Unfortunate Souls mm-hmm. from Little Mermaid or uh, Be Prepared by Scar in Lion King, where it's like their philosophy on the world and like why they think that they are kind of better than everybody else. And it's a 
uh, it's kind of like the 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 heart of where their like evil comes from, but it comes from a place where they just think that they're right, mm-hmm. um, and that started to kind of click with me because I tend to I tend to do a I'm I, I'm a much more like emotional and like character player, um, so like give me a protag emotion any day or you know give me a charm character that just has like one deal and is really passionate about that one deal, uh, but the antagonist has always been a little bit like hazy to me, so. Um, yeah, it's interesting just trying to like flesh out emotionally that antag so that when there is that confrontation between the antag and the protag, eventually, whatever that ends up looking like, uh, that maybe the audience doesn't know who they want to root for mm-hmm. or they're like almost rooting for the antag in a way because they are so fleshed out. So that's my new like goal. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I guess like a way of thinking about it is, and you say this a lot, right? Like the antagonist is the protagonist of their own story, but Mm. that might be like a really cool way to, to approach that idea that like the antagonist is someone who's feeling emotionally troubled about something. Mm -hmm. And like, they're just trying to like resolve that emotional tension and get themselves back to a good place. It just so happens that somebody's in their way. Exactly. (laughs) And and that person from this other side is the hero of our story. Right. The good guy to it. It, I'm thinking of like every single villain from every single Star Trek movie now (laughs) as like the big problem in those movies Mm -hmm. is because like the villain really has no purpose but to be in your way. Every villain is just seeking revenge about some like nondescript thing that was done to them in the past and they're patient and seeking their revenge. And it's like, the dullest thing in the world is seeking your revenge because it's not like all you want to do is like destroy opposition. Right. Which doesn't really make for a great story. Maybe Mm -hmm. it makes for like a good spectacle or like gives you a good excuse to create something. But like for a really good story, it's not just about destroying opposition. It's, it's about a way of like setting things right somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. Hmm. Good to think about. Yeah. So you were improvising for like, what you said four years before music improv? Yeah, I've been doing improv uh, since uh, fall of 2008 mm-hmm. after I graduated college because I didn't know how adults met each other. Yeah, so I started taking improv. Very common tune. Yeah, right? Yeah. I did a lot of theater. I went to a theater high school. I was a performing, I went to a performing arts boarding school outside of Boston. So I've been doing theater for my whole life. Um, and then I went to NYU Film School for animation, uh, which is just another form of visual <laughs> storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really started to realize, like, especially once I started doing improv and I'm an illustrator, so, uh, the types of drawings that I end up drawing and the animations that I was making or movies or whatever, um, that it's all visual storytelling. So yeah, that's why I started doing improv just to meet people, <laughs> have a good time. Did it work? It worked. Oh God. My God. No. I know. Well, I often, I often joke cause I, I met my husband in level four at the pit in like 2010 and then I took like a year off of improv uh, in the middle because mission accomplished mission accomplished yeah exactly that's a joke it's actually because he's st- he was going to take level 5 and we'd be- been dating maybe a month and a half and I was like well I don't want to break up in a class so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not take this class very smart yeah <laughs> then- very smart and very considerate of others in the class thank too. you Good I for thought you. so too yeah <laughs> and then what brought you back into it after having found a partner yeah. accomplished your goal you didn't need to be improvising anymore or what, what, right. what dragged you back in? Um, I think I just needed that outlet. Um, and for me, um, I was on an indie team uh, for like two years that we were doing musical improv, but before anybody, we had never seen a musical improv before, the way that we think of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would literally be a, a friend of mine uh, who's on the team, his name's Brian Wecht. He's in a, 
band called uh, Ninja Sex Party. Great. Great. Uh, he, he, we would just be in a scene and he'd be like, oh, we should sing. And so we'd like literally go to the piano and we'd like sing a song like organically throughout the set. And so I had this idea in my head of like, oh, I'd love to do musical improv again. I took some class uh, that ended up being like a short form musical class. I was like, this is not what I'm looking for. Found the magnet and was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. Um, yeah. And then that was that. That was like summer of 2012. Who was so, who teaching the classes in, at that point? Uh, Michael Martin mm-hmm. and Frank. Mm-hmm. So I took all three classes with Michael Martin. Um, I think I auditioned, and then I auditioned like March of 2013. I was put on the Jezebels, which was that all-lady team for two years. And then I was on Aquarius and Midnight Heat, and now I'm on Wonderland. So going into my like seventh megawatt season, which is cool. Wow, good for you. Yeah, and the premiere's been on for... For like a year and a half now? A little more than that, maybe two years. Maybe even two years, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know. Time flies when it you're meeting people. Flies. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, and then once you kind of like found musical improv, you kind of never looked back. It was hard to look back. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I think actually the only non-musical improv that I've done since has been object work, mm. uh, which was a director series uh, with Charlie Nicholson that we've got a couple of dates coming up again, um, which is... I think I think the reason it clicked with me is because it is emotional and it's weird and it's experimental and we're using an actual object um, to kind of fuel every scene. Um, object as subject, object as puppet, object as scene partner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of like autobiographical stuff in there too. So it's like storytelling and game playing as well as scenes and callbacks, et cetera. So I think for, for that kind of show, it still spoke to me because it was as like emotionally heightened mm-hmm. as musical improv was or is. Um, I think that's, that's kind of what I've learned about myself as an improviser is like, I'm coming from a theater perspective, right? So like, if I feel like I'm putting on a piece of theater, I feel really strong about mm-hmm. it. Um, I think if I put on like a really strong Herald or something like that, and I, you know, I used to do Herald's, um, I would feel okay. <laughs> I feel okay about like the part of the scene that I felt okay about. And then I, I, I just, I never felt quick enough. I never felt like I could get ideas out enough. Um, which in retrospect, I don't know if that was true. That's just like maybe my experience level was what made me feel that way at the time. Um, but now doing musical and having everything be really emotional and heightened and character based, um, and I can play that way because other people on the team are playing in the other way, so it kind of balances each other out. Um, I find it's hard to go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I for my like, um, I think like Harold is hard be- because from my perspective, you never quite are sure if you're doing it well, right? It, definitely. Okay. Cool. Like, I'm glad I, you I, said that. And, and like, <laughs> like, I'm I'm sort of the opposite of you. My my like ideal like role I, I love being a really interesting background person oh cool yeah no I like that too for sure um but you more so for I mean this isn't like true like sometimes I'll get in like really silly moods but like I kind of enjoy being in those shows where the audience is more fly on the wall and it's a little bit more of like the the feel of the show is like an overheard quality rather than like a presentational quality I get that um that's just where I kind of feel like I'm, I'm able to like most be me. Mm -hmm. Um, because I get to, for me being big and and emotional and, and, and in like performance mode Mm -hmm. makes me feel super, um, self-conscious. 
mm. makes me feel exactly the way we both feel listening to our voices on a podcast as we're recording a podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I just like am monitoring every like insincere thing. So for me, the best way to get rid of that self-consciousness is to be in a situation where I feel like I don't need to perform this per se. Right. The audience is overhearing it, which yeah. has its own set of like, limitations and problems because you can get into this into this habit of like well if i just do what you would do in real life i'll be fine Mm -hmm. and you quickly find out that that's not the case at all you have to be really good and selective about choosing the right detail that communicates the perception of real life in an audience's mind and not just do the same shit you would do every day because boy that gets boring quick (laughs) yeah i get that i think that like with musical form or, 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 or more like emotional form, sidetrack for a second. Sure. Um, I was just reading Greg Tavares's book again, uh, Improv for Everyone. Excellent book. I highly recommend it. Great. And he talks in that book about you have your, your head players, your body players, and your heart players. Head, mm-hmm. head, heart, body are like how he classifies everybody. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I so simple. That. Isn't can that you great? Be, can you be both? Yes. Can you be more than one? You definitely can. And one, it, it's not like how you are all the time. It's like what you lead off with that leads you to the oh. other two. Yeah. I'm a body heart then. Um, and I'm sure. definitely a head heart, rarely body. <laughs> you have a body. Lewis. I know I do. I'm, I'm getting comfortable with that fact. But you should take a musical level one class. I have. I've done, I've done musical. Okay. Yeah. Take I, it with me. Okay. Be my big sib. You're on. <laughs> all right. Challenge accepted. You're on. Okay. I'll do it. Um... Um, I like that thinking though. That's interesting. It, it, it like, it becomes like pretty easy to classify people. Not mm-hmm. that, I mean, it's a gross thing to classify people, but like it, it, you start to kind of see of like, Oh yeah, that is how I lead. Yeah. And, and maybe there is something worthwhile to like, if this is feeling stale, choosing mm-hmm. another approach to it. Yeah. But I, like something that I, I think I understand about musical improv that I don't often experience when I'm doing it is the way that you can lose yourself in having the freedom to be so big and having the freedom to be so over the top Mm -hmm. that you don't have to like worry about monitoring your own performance. You just naturally are able to get out of. Yeah. When I love those moments where you're being real big, you're being real emotional or, you know, presentational, et cetera. And then you can kind of turn back to your scene partner and be really quiet and get really like real for a second. Cause you know that that song's coming and you know that like, I'm gonna. I want to sing this song to this person, and it's gonna be about this. And yeah. you can kind of like change your tactics a little bit, um, and that is what I think is interesting. Um, I wonder if you like to play like like that because that's like the heightened version of who you are Probably. as a person. Probably. I think the heightened version of who I am as a person is smaller. <laughs> okay. I think maybe so. Cool. <laughs> um, and no, I just I feel like too embarrassed. Uh, um, I, I, I like showing you my emotion. It just doesn't like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm not able to stay connected with the roots of where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I'm the kind of player I enjoy like hiding things in my own mind. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I enjoy like, if I know why I feel the way that I'm feeling, I don't feel under any obligation to explain myself to anybody. Mm-hmm. I just assume that my behavior is going to make sense but I have to have that little like thread in my own mind right. to like some kind of secret thing that I know that I'm not, I'm not like trying to keep it from yeah, anybody, yeah, yeah. but I don't feel like I need to like make a big deal out of spelling it out. Yeah. But, but that keeps me feeling very focused on like, I know what I'm saying, 
because I know how I feel about it. And I know how I feel because I know it's important to me because, you know, like mm-hmm. little things like that, that sometimes if I'm playing too big or too fast, I just feel like I lose that connection. Yeah. And then I'm doing stuff in order to push a show forward mm. rather than doing it because I'm naturally feeling so strongly about something that that's heightening to the very next moment. It's mm. like, I feel that disconnect where it's like, I'm judging this moment and, and using my muscle to like, keep things moving. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've tried to like communicate this idea with a bunch of people and I never do well with it. Okay. So I'm going to try it on you. One thing that I think is so great about musical theater in general is the way that it kind of is expressive of this kind of like split in the way that like the outer world around you is very dull Mm, mm -hmm. and it's kind of small and like distant from you and irritating and the inner world inside of you is kind of like intense and gigantic and there's a lot of drama and it's like there's not enough space inside you to hold this like giant of feeling Mm -hmm. that you have and then in musical theater you just kind of flip those realities Mm -hmm. and you create this like external reality that lives by the rules of how you feel inside. Mm-hmm. And how you feel inside is often, like, it's so connected to um, kind of, like, very deeply entrenched 14- and 15-year-old feelings that are still actively <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> surging. For sure. Mm-hmm. That there's a tendency for, like, musical theater to also, like, itch scratch that sweet spot that like angsty yeah <laughs> yeah yeah or, or like oversized there's something mm-hmm. like oversized about the feelings to everything yeah you're, you're it's so oversized that you have no choice but to give voice to these like powerful feelings these very like primal feelings that you just you keep tucked away neatly inside all the time right well that's what they say about musicals is that the reason that people sing is because uh w- words can't serve you yeah. like the emotion is so heightened that you have to sing yeah uh, so I like thinking about that. It's also funny to think about every musical just from the perspective of a 15-year-old. Because um, I think that's very accurate. <laughs> well, it, like, I don't know. There's just, like, that way of, like, you feel something at, like, 15. Oh, yeah. You feel so intensely. Well, yeah, because, like, if you're watching a musical and everybody's being, like, legit 30-year-olds or, like, 35-year-olds, like, we're all just going to be like, hey, you want to get some food? Polite. I'm going to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm tired. Yeah. Work. You know, like, yeah. it would be, actually, I wouldn't mind seeing that show, but I'd be interested to see exactly how it would play out. I'm a sucker <laughs> for that stuff. Oh, yeah. No, I enjoy it also. Um, but up to a point. Yeah. There, there comes another point where it's like, you got to exercise, you got to exercise your feelings and and there is something of like it's nice to have a format where things can become so oversized that you watching it are able to kind of be enchanted by it for a Mm -hmm. while and then it kind of like puts your own feelings back in some kind of like perspective again it's like it's like a way to keep like balanced like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes sense i like it you did a good job thank you thank you uh, um, I had this conversation with Carly Minardo mm-hmm. a oh. few weeks back, oh. who's also an animator. Gosh, her stuff is so pretty. It's awesome, it's isn't it? Awesome. It's, it's oh. very beautiful. I like, you know, Carly, if you're listening, um, the, her work is, I get so jealous when I see it, which yeah. means I just like really like it, but I have this like visceral, like, fuck this shit, it's just so good. Like when I see any of her posters. Or yeah, like that. that's it's great. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Yes. 
Uh, um, that, so you're touching on like the perfect kind of jealousy. Oh, yeah. It's the only kind of jealousy I like. <laughs> it's the right kind of jealousy. Mm-hmm. There is like I, I I I believe this. You don't. There are some people who just naturally are like I think playful and mm-hmm. driven to kind of like create and innovate. Mm-hmm. And then there are certain people like me. I don't do anything if I'm not feeling jealous towards another person. <laughs> okay. But like a good it's a kind good thing of jealousy. to know about yourself. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's like in the right proportion. If it gets out of control, then you're just a miserable piece of shit of a human being. And I'm. I'm Personally, not. I'm rarely jealous of other people. Okay. But then you'll see a show or you'll read a book or you'll see a work of art mm-hmm. that makes you go like, ah, son oh, of a bitch. Fucking shit, yeah. And it keeps you honest because yep. it, it, that's what keeps you feeling uncomfortable enough to like want to be pushed harder mm-hmm. and want to like, the, the discipline that we were talking about at the very top of this conversation, want to like sit in front of the drafting table mm-hmm. as much as your body is telling you, I hate this. And like <laughs> I'm force sleepy. yourself. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So Carly and I were talking about... Um, um, like animating and acting and and mm-hmm. kind of the overlap of like an improviser's mind with an animator's mind. I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, so I went to film school after four years of theater school and I think I approached it a little bit differently than my classmates, um, especially by the time I went to animation because I was unconcerned about actually being an animator yeah. in the way of like technically... I was probably like the least technically proficient animator NYU has ever graduated in their entire in their entire existence. I, I only did like you know two D or three D stop motion animation, no computer animation. Um, so like my final project was maybe like I think it was like two minutes and six seconds long. It took me like six months to make. Um, I was just like unconcerned about like <laughs> about learning Flash, about learning these like techniques that would ultimately give me. you know, like a job, Mm -hmm. an an animator's job. Because for me, I was just, I was just stuck in like the visual storytelling. And um, that was the only thing I really wanted that that, that mattered to me was like the story. Um, And I started to realize like probably halfway through my senior year, so excited I got a BFA in film because I wanted an illustrator. (laughs) I was like, I just want to just, I just want to draw. I just want to draw. I want to create kids books, you know. Um, But around the same time I started I started teaching animation at the Children's Museum of the Arts, which is where I actually still work. It's been nine years. Um, Congrats. Thanks. Find a job, never leave it. That's my motto. Um, I I started teaching animation to five to 15-year-olds, and it was really cool. I I saw my work go into a different realm um, once I was, like, making stories with, like, seven-year-olds, and we were animating with seven, eight, nine-year-olds these big, long, weird, weird movies about, like, the 20th troll. Yeah, and that troll went down the toilet, and he found a poker game in the subway system, and it was great. And it was just, like, this insane storytelling. And it was around the same time that I then started doing improv, too, so it all kind of started melding together. Um, But uh, it's interesting because now when I draw, when I'm illustrating, like, I tend to always put my figures into... Uh, little scenes like I draw a lot of I draw a lot of like creatures and animals and cute stuff like a lot of whimsy and it's always like it's not just going to be a rabbit it's going to be a rabbit in a suit who's holding a flag and mm-hmm. he's at a horse race and like ooh commentary I don't know why because <laughs> a rabbit's watching a horse working I don't know um, so for me like I think 
yeah, that's where the storytelling kind of came into play with me drawing mm -hmm. and animating ish before I rambled a lot. No, just now. Well, you did, but I did, but it was nice. Okay. It fit thematically what you were talking oh, good. about. So it's like a herald. Yeah. Hey, that was a callback. Nice. I did it. You Look guys. It's, it's very free, but also yes. tightly structured at the same time, which is <laughs> mm -hmm. what you want. I think there's a lot of talk. Oh boy. Annie just dropped her dropped uh, cap. cap for a water so bottle. Sorry. Really ruined on the, the flow of this whole conversation. Thank you. I appreciate oh, that. There's a lot of talk, uh, um, especially in early level improv classes, about how like it makes you think like a child again or like access childlike parts of oneself. But I don't know that that's strictly true. And I'm sure you have a lot more insight into this than I do because when you're around kids and see the way the kids' narrative brains are operating... Yeah they're thinking very, very differently. Rules are not set in right. in their brains and the yeah. way that they're set into like adult brains. Mm -hmm. What is it like being surrounded by kids all the time? Like, What are you learning about storytelling by being exposed to kids' stories? Well, it's so funny because I now spend my time with uh, like exclusively one to five-year-olds. So I'm not getting a lot of story stuff from like the two and a half and unders because yeah. they're just learning to talk. Um, although they love jokes. I mean, the jokes are not great. The jokes are about, like, I'm going to make a pizza, and I'm putting cheese, pepperoni, a kitty cat, and peppers. And they go, oh, not a kitty cat. I'm like, oh, you got me. <laughs> and then they'll be like, tell that pizza joke again. I'm like, okay, I'm making a pizza. I'll do the same joke again. And then they're all calling um, out the punchline to you. You're like, fading. Kitty cat. Yeah. You have, to keep, you have to keep the joke in the same line, because yes. otherwise if you mix it up, they're going to be like, wait, you do put pepperoni They become it. very angry. Mm -hmm. You have like the same like end to your career as Steve Martin did. You're just surrounded <laughs> by kids all screaming out the punchlines to your jokes before you even tell them, and you're mm -hmm. feeling all dispirited inside. Yeah, ukulele, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, storytelling, like developmentally for kids, starts really happening around four years old. And that's where they're really starting to, um, they're not only connecting the things in their life uh, with other things, but then they're, 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 it's the first time that they're actually imagining other things. Because around three to four is when you start kind of thinking on the inside of your brain, as opposed to talk, when you're talking loud, you are basically thinking outside of your brain. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally, yeah. Uh, so it's like the first time that they have like an inner world. Um, so like in four and five-year-old classes, they just want to tell you stories about all kinds of weird things that sort of mix real life in through these filters of things that they saw on TV or a picture that they see every day that somehow they've made up a story about this picture. Um, like a princess who goes to through a rabbit hole is then with mommy at work and you're kind of like okay that's a cool concept so a lot of a lot of my job ends up being improvising with four and five year olds because you're just like yeah yeah i saw that did you and did you see blah blah like you just start kind of anding them and they're like yeah and and that tree was full of candy and you're like what? And there was a rainbow on top. Yeah. Oh my God. They get so intense about it. Um, but it's really fun to see when that storytelling really starts to kick in. Uh, Cause you can, you can like watch their faces and you can see their brains like working and their eyes are like, 
like looking around the room, like thinking about, okay, what, what in this room can I incorporate into the story? So if I'm sitting behind like a bunch of blocks, they're like, yeah. And then, uh, the blocks were there and it made a a kingdom. You're like, okay, cool. Um, so I love hanging out with kids because they're so weird. Yeah. They're so great. They're, it's like the best, strangest Wonderland show I've ever seen is <laughs> is hanging out with a four-year-old. Yeah. And actually now all the women, this is just a side note, but all the women of Wonderland, Kathleen Armenti and Camber Carpenter, they all work in my department now oh, cool. <laughs> at the Children's okay. Museum. So I think we're going to start having some real weird shows, hopefully about preschoolers. But. Does it, are you like able, does it rub off on you? The little ones? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm. it's funny. I think every single thing that I do in my life is something that I, like, have a natural ability to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it rubs off on me or if I just, like, am in my element. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say that in a weird, like, I know I'm really good at my job, but I know I'm really good at my job. Uh, And uh, I wouldn't be doing it for so long if I weren't. so like a lot of teaching at the museum is a lot of making faces at kids and sound effects and singing and making stupid puns with their parents and that kind of stuff. And that's just me all the time. I feel like, I feel like that's me on stage. I feel like that's me in real life. So I, I don't know. I feel like there, some people are very ambitious. They kind of know what they want, and then they're really good at breaking it down into the steps to be taken and Mm -hmm. and have like a really clear sense of target. Mm -hmm. And then there are some people who have a really good feel for who they are Mm -hmm. and just kind of allow themselves to kind of naturally gravitate to... They just go with with the grain of themselves and kind of seem to end up in good places without necessarily like using a lot of muscle to like pull their way there. Yeah. And then there are some people who I think are lazy and others who are (laughs) maybe a little bit like in conflict with themselves who just kind of are seeking purpose and maybe seeking it like incorrectly, like assuming that like work is going to give them purpose or, or like whatever it is. You strike me as more of the second type. (laughs) I hope so. I think I, I strive to be that. Um, I've all every like if I look back at like every major decision that I've made in my life, everything has felt easy mm-hmm. to make that decision. Not saying that like I haven't worked very hard to get certain places or to achieve certain things, but like the initial decision is an easy one. Mm-hmm. Like I, I grew up in Southeast Texas and um, I auditioned for this boarding school in Boston. Like who am I? Like what what's that about? And when I got in, I remember being like, Yep, okay, I'm gonna go now. I'm like 14. I'm like, hey, mom, so I'm going to go to this boarding school in two months, and I'm going to live there. And she's like, oh, okay, great. Great. Well, bye. Mm-hmm. I'm like, bye. You know, like, easy decision. Changed my life. It was a huge success in my life. Um, same with film school. It's like I did a summer program at NYU. A teacher was like, you want to go to film school? I'm like, yep. He's like, great. I'll, re- I'll write your recommendation. I'm like, okay, great. Easy choice. Great. It was a really good decision. And then working at the museum, it was like started as an internship that I didn't realize I was being interviewed. I thought I was just giving getting a tour. And I literally at the end was like, so when do I start? And she goes, oh, Monday? And I was like, great. <laughs> like, so I've been here like nine years and then like doing, doing uh, improv or being at the Magnet, like it was just kind of like saying yes. Sure, yeah, I'll audition for Megawatt. That sounds fun. 
got onto Megawatt, then things happen. You start coaching. Uh, key members move away <laughs> or start teaching at other theaters. And so all of a sudden you're like next in line to teach. Great. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds good. Um, I have I have a huge... I started a business this month or last couple of months um, to be, I have a booth at the Union Square Holiday Market selling temporary tattoos, stickers, and cards. Amazing. Uh, (laughs) And uh, that's a huge undertaking. And it was very much like I was in a position where somebody was asking me, hey, do you want to do this? I think you'd be good at it. Be like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I've been working my ass off like, uh, like 60 hours plus a week on top of teaching and working and stuff like that but i think it'll be you know a good a good thing and then we'll see what happens after that Mm -hmm. keep saying yes and i i feel like it's like an easier way to live right but is it just saying yes or is it saying yes to the things that feel yeah like there's no reason to say no it's yes i mean yeah it's definitely it's definitely saying yes to the things that feel the most right um like there have been some instances where i could have said yes to some things and it wouldn't have been the right decision, uh, but saying yes to the things that say that seem right—that seems like the 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 most logical thing to do. Yeah. But not everybody, I think, operates like that. Yeah. Um, which you should. You totally should. It's great. We got to trust yourself first. It works out. You, it, yeah. I, I think that there's a lot of. It, it's a little bit like approaching a show, where like the mm-hmm. more you're thinking about how to do it, the less able you are to do it. Oh, Sometimes yeah. the best thing you can do is just kind of like, all right, I need to forget <laughs> yeah. everything and just oh, yeah. do it. The more you look inside yourself to like, like think like, how do I really feel? What do I really want? The further mm-hmm. it, it just like, it's just like emptiness. <laughs> so you, you got to be in a place where you kind of like trust yourself and you trust that when something feels right, it's like, okay, yes. Yeah. And when something doesn't feel right, it, it's, you have permission to say no. Are you good at saying no to things? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. I love saying no to stuff. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm realistic about my time. I'm also now, I feel like after being, you know, I've been a, like a freelance illustrator doing all kinds of like custom commissions and stuff for the last like eight years. So at a certain point you realize, okay, the stuff that I was doing at 23, Hey, can you make this thing that'll take 16 hours? I could throw you 20 bucks and a cred. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Now, like, that's just not something that I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if I, I, I price by, by hour and by edit. And if you, that, if you can't, if that's not okay with you, then I will recommend some other illustrators for you or whatever it is. What are your, like, your guidelines, if you have them, for the business side of being an artist? Um, if you really want to do the job, do the job. If you are on the fence about, if it's one of these things where if you're not going to get paid enough for it and later you're going to realize, oh, I wasn't paid enough for this and it took me too long, then either ask for, ask for what you think is a ridiculous rate that people can pay or just say no to it. Because it's better, like I would rather have two hours at home like with my husband, like not having to do any work than get paid 40 bucks to do something that I don't give a shit about. Um, and if it's something you really don't want to do, don't do it. You're just going to be so mad every time you go to that project, like every single time. And that's, and I think that's true for, for improv too. Cause you could, I mean, you could ask to do all different kinds of shows or like coach different teams. And, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, I totally want to coach your team you guys are awesome. I really like you. I'm going to make it work. Sometimes you're just like, you know what? I honestly don't have the time. Mm-hmm. A few, like I think six months ago, I said to myself, I was like, I'm not going to take anything on Saturdays. 
which seems crazy. Like for, for, I feel like people who, uh, especially improvisers who get to a certain point where you realize you're like, you've got a rehearsal or you've got a show every night of the week to be like, I'm going to take a whole day that I'm not going to plan anything. And yeah, I might work all day at home at the desk or whatever, but I might go to Ikea. I might go to brunch. I might do nothing. I might like literally, I might get drunk all day long. Probably not, but I could. Those days actually become really sacred. Those yeah, become they really, really do. There, there, there is wisdom in the Sabbath. Yeah, you have to, you have to take a minute to breathe and be a human. Uh, and I think that that has taken a little while to like know. Yeah. And to really like embrace. Yeah. Yeah. You need to have that like space in your life Mm -hmm. too, or else you just start to hate everything. Even (laughs) the stuff that you love, you start to hate and you you resent everything. Well, you don't have any new ideas either. Mm -hmm. And that's part of like why you're, you start to resent things because you just, all of your ideas are just like, I'm sleepy. Yeah. I want to go, I want to leave now. I would not like to be here right now. Yeah. And that's never a great attitude for anything. It's it's interesting. Like my mind just goes to like the, what you were talking about earlier with like three and four year olds who are like at the stage where they're mixing fact and fiction Mm -hmm. constantly where it's like nothing but new ideas everywhere. It's like so new that they're just tying everything together Mm -hmm. into this narrative. And then like the kind of like, malaise of adulthood or overworking or, or you know it, yeah. is that thing of like there's no new ideas anywhere you feel like a like a carpet that's just been walked on too many times oh absolutely neither here nor there all right uh, um one last question about the business of art too okay. pricing yourself how mm-hmm. do you so mm. how do you mm. do that how do you like figure <laughs> out what a fair price is for your time and 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 for the work that you're creating um for me it's like i have i think about an hourly rate and now I'm and I'm now at the point where I get very similar types of commissions, so I know like how long a show poster will take, or I know how long a you know, whatever it is a, a, a commissioned like a wedding invitation suite. Um, I know how long those are t- those will take me, so then I can kind of break it down hourly, and then I give them an hourly rate, maybe a little elevated, knowing that there's like a buffer time in there. Um, with this holiday market, I've had to price actual products, like stuff that people are buying. Um, and that's been interesting because I've looked at like competing companies and then thought about, okay, they're charging $15 for eight, eight temporary tattoos. I'm charging $18 for 40 temporary tattoos. I feel like that's fine. Um, but as a, con- and then I think about like as a consumer, how much would I actually pay for this mm-hmm. and for me it's like oh I think about oh I have a $20 bill 18's, 18 is perfect or you think about okay maybe if you want to get multiples oh it's only it's only $18 I'll get four you know that kind of mentality um, so it's really just thinking about like like looking at the rest of the market and uh, like out there of similar products and trying to distill it into something that I feel like I would pay as a consumer and then I would generally feel okay about making as a proprietor um so that's kind of how i figured it out for the the union square holiday market and with that market everything is usually super expensive right mm-hmm. like you and i i feel like there was something it was like six hundred fifty thousand unique visitors last winter three million visits guys i'm over in over my head uh, but um you know there's that many people going through wanting to buy stuff like it's it's festive people are excited you go around and like everything is 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks, whatever. So nothing in my shop is over 40 bucks. I have some stuff that's even $3, like little vinyl stickers. Mm. Um, just because I was like, you know what? I want to be that person that like, if you can't find anything else to afford, but you really want to buy something, 
come get some stickers, you know. You've got nieces or nephews or whatever it is. So that was kind of my thinking with pricing there. And we'll see if it's a huge failure. What are the dates <laughs> again? Like when, oh, do, when does your booth go up? Oh my gosh, November 17th through December 24th. Ooh. I'll be there all day, every day for that whole time. Get <laughs> so on it. It's called Annie Draws Stuff. And it'll be fun. Do you know where in Union Square you're going to be? No. I might be in the Made in Brooklyn section. We'll see. Cool. Hopefully not way in the back. Cool. Great. Get on it, folks. All right. We're going to uh, uh, move on to a, a slightly different portion of today's podcast. Okay. We're going to spend oh, five minutes. Yeah, five minutes. Five, six minutes playing Monologue Hotspot. Here's the rules. Okay. I'm going to call a suggestion to inspire uh, 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 you to share something that you're comfortable sharing that is true, so you're not making up a character. Mm -hmm. And then at any point, I can interrupt you to launch into my own truthful thing based on anything that you brought up. And then at any point, you can interrupt me to launch back into something of your own. So we're just taking turns interrupting each other and just kind of scatter shot seeing what's in each other's minds. Great. Are you ready for monologue hotspot anymore? All right. The suggestion is back to back. Uh, um, uh, um, back to back. Um, so that makes me think of back to school. And um, I went to a lot of different schools as a kid because we moved around a lot. So, uh, but we would always move back to we'd always move back to the same town. So I grew up in Beaumont, Texas. We moved to Atlanta. Moved back to Beaumont. Moved to Virginia. Moved to a town outside of Beaumont. Uh, we just kept on coming back. It's also where my parents grew up. It's where like my grandparents grew up. So um, I have apart from going to college and eventually moving in uh, with Megan, I have never moved. I grew up and stayed in the same home, and uh, my mother grew up in a home like four blocks down the street and her mother grew up in a home like three blocks down the street from that so I think that that has like a lot to do with like some of the bedrock of my character is like from my mom's side of the family we we migrate at like the speed of trees basically it's just like <laughs> a seed falls off and blows like a block away and then like takes root there and I think it gives me a, there's like a very like quiet slow moving quality to me that has something to do with I just didn't have to have a lot of novel experiences I always felt very like secure in this kind of like tiny world Um, I had a tiny world Uh, it was underneath the stairs of one of the houses that we lived in in Virginia we moved twice in a year and a half so that's fun (laughs) fun fact Uh, but this little tiny room underneath the stairs I would put on shadow puppet plays based on Archie comics so it was really just me reading Archie comics aloud and uh, trying to do shadow puppets but I would invite my friends over I'd make tickets um, and I'd force them into this like small little cubby hole that I think had like spiders. It was not for people to sit in. My my favorite thing as a kid was weird little tiny private spaces that nobody else could get to. I had two that I particularly loved. One was in a front closet where I would sit. I would call it playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but all that entailed was I would put on a green sweater and then sit in the dark in this closet. <laughs> little tiny like undercoats it, like it wasn't playing anything i don't know why in my mind it was that's what i'm playing but mm-hmm. to, and the other one was there was like a shrub in our front yard and there's like a little you could crawl under the shrub and then there was like a little tiny like open area under the shrug mm-hmm. that i would call the bat cave and i go play batman but that just 
was sitting in the shrub. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best friend and I, who lived down the street, we would play uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and um, it, we would just be Michelangelo and April. And uh, April would stand next to the garage and say, "Help, Michelangelo, help!" <laughs> the other one would jump in and say, "I'll save you." And then th- we'd swap places, and then we'd be like. Michelangelo, help, help. <laughs> For like hours, we would play this game. It was just swapping back and forth. Um, and uh, it was actually near my my magical shrub also, which was a mulberry tree that I would stand inside. And that was around the period where I thought I could control the wind. And I would stand in my yard with my arms raised up, swaying back and forth really forcefully, thinking that I was controlling the weather. The two things that I was always on the hunt for, well, I guess three things I was always on the hunt for when I was a kid. I was always on the hunt for secret passages everywhere I went, so I was constantly feeling walls and books and shit like that mm-hmm. to like see which place had it. I was convinced that every home had like a secret tunnel to escape the Nazis when mm-hmm. they would land. <laughs> I was convinced that there must be a rock out there that was my rock, and if I held it, I would be able to fly. So I was constantly going through rocks everywhere I went to like try to fly. I take like a running leap, mm-hmm. get away from adults and take a running leap. And I was always looking for ghosts everywhere I went to, looking for any kind of clue. I once some stayed in the mo- one of the top 10 most haunted places in America. It is a plantation outside of uh, 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 Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it's called Myrtle's Plantation. And me and my best friend, we were on a road trip and we went and we stayed there. You can stay there. And they gave us the most haunted room where, well, seriously, you go, they're like, this is the only key. You're the only people in this whole wing of the house of this plantation. And it's where the mother and the three children who were poisoned by the birthday, in the birthday cake, all died in the room where we stayed. And Oprah Winfrey actually stayed in the bed that we slept in and didn't make it through the night because she woke up halfway through the night completely tucked in and was so freaked out that she went and stayed in the Howard Johnson. And um, uh, we met these two women named Rhonda who were, they were both named Rhonda and they were lovers and they worked together in a factory in Baton Rouge and they were ghost catchers and they, w- they showed me and my friend who were so high. We were so high. <laughs> oh my God, we got so high. And then we like go around this like plantation to look for ghosts ghosts and they like showed us how to look for orbs it's always orbs isn't that stupid orbs. it's like whenever there's like proof of ghosts it's always a picture of like an orb you know, you're gonna be dust man it's just dust. any more folks yay. yay and a couple of other big thank yous of course and as always first off to our engineer grant michael goldberg to our producer evan ford barden to our executive producer ed harpsman and to all of you fine people for listening to this delightful podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please give us a positive Positive shout out on the various platforms that require ratings for us to be uh, uh, noticed by the public at large. That's iTunes. We're talking Stitcher. We're talking uh, um, SoundCloud. You know the deal. Uh, um, you don't need to be told. If you have a suggestion for a monologue hotspot that you'd like to hear or a premise for a very serious scene with a jar of pickles, well, tweet that shit at us, dude. Tell us. We will use it, and we will even mention your name publicly for all the world to hear. It's a very exciting thing. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks once again, Annie Moore. Woo! <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> so long, suckers! You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.